0: Thank you, you can be seated. Uh, if you're just joining us, my name's Britt, I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I just wanna like give one more shameless plug to the uh, welcome brunch that's immediately following this service in room 107. We serve you brunch, we hang out, we're not gonna do anything weird, we just wanna tell you a little bit about our church. And uh, I wanna just get to know you. I love meeting the new faces at Sunridge, so give us you know, 45 minutes or an hour of your time. Like uh, Pam said, we have childcare, you don't have to send your kids out. Uh, you may welcome it. It might be like a second hour of a date for you. You know, you're sitting here without your children right now, and you know, you could, you could have a two hour date in all total. It'd be nice. So, anyway, hope, hope you can come. Um, you know, in 1925, there was a young biology teacher named John Scopes, and he was charged by the state of Tennessee, with teaching evolution to his students. Uh, That trial uh, became unaffectionately known as the monkey trials, or it was dramatized in a 1960s movie called Inherit the Wind, starring Spencer Tracy. Um, And the, the trial captured the attention of America, not just because of the potential outcome and kind of the implications of that trial, but because it it just brought together these two completely opposite legal titans and put them in an epic legal battle. Uh, uh, representing the state of Tennessee was a lawyer named William Jennings Bryan and he was from the South and kinda like a good old boy. And uh, Scopes was represented by a man named Clarence Darrow who was an evolutionist and an agnostic and uh, kind of polished as a lawyer, and came from the north, and he was provided by the ACLU to defend Scopes in this trial. Uh, Scopes ended up losing his case, which was kind of part of the, uh, the whole original idea anyway. But um, what made the story behind the story was when Darrow, the... Evolutionist made an unprecedented move and he put Brian, the lawyer for the state and the creationist, on the stand. And he basically picked him apart. He picked him apart because Brian couldn't even answer basic questions about the Bible. And he was proved to be biblically illiterate in that uh, testimony. And ironically, illiterate because of its exclusive, the Bible can only be interpreted literally every verse uh, position. And so, what happened, you know, you're fully aware of what happened with that trial and, and its implications as in its appeals and subsequent uh, trials, um, you know, to our educational system. But uh, also, what came out of that is kind of a caricature, two caricatures. One Being, uh, if you're an evolutionist, you're kind of depicted as, you know, uh, sophisticated and intelligent. And yet, if you're a creationist, you're kind of depicted as this backwater kind of fundamentalist, you know, hick from the country. But is that true? Is it true? The reason why I give you that little history lesson is we're in a series, if you're joining us, called Lies We Believe. And uh, as we've said in the past, the best way to refute a lie is with the truth. And that's simply echoing the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 10.5 when he said that we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And all the Apostle Paul is saying is that there are accepted beliefs, there are ways of thinking that for whatever reason they've just been repeated often enough or they're false from the beginning or whatever. It's like we, we just have accepted them. And yet Paul says that we can place the life of Jesus Christ and his teachings and, of course, the teachings of the Bible next to it. And if, if, if the lie is a lie, then the truth is going to refute that. That's exactly what I want to do today in exploring this lie that we believe, that evolution proves there is no God. And I want to also look at, in a, in a way, its antithesis, which says that if, if I believe in evolution in some form or fashion, that there's just no way that I can believe in God, that they, that they cannot be brought together. I kind of have in mind three kinds of people. I hope that this, this message will cause all everybody to think and challenge you and encourage you in different ways. But really, I have three people in mind uh, when, when, when I wrote this message. First of all, um, if, you, if you feel like your faith, is, it just totally depends on you embracing a uh, six-literal 24-hour day uh, six, uh, creation and an earth that is 6,000 years old I have you in mind because I want to challenge your thinking a little bit on that. And in so challenging it, I want to strengthen your faith. The other person I have in mind is someone who might be sitting here and you're saying, you know, you've always thought of the Bible as being an unreliable document that's been debunked by science and in particular evolutionary science. And I want to enlighten you today a little bit, if possible. And then I know that in our audience today there could easily be those of you who have walked away from the faith because you feel that evolutionary science has somehow undermined even the idea that there could be God. Or maybe, maybe you're standing on the edge of faith and you're considering stepping across that line, but you, you haven't been able to do so, do so, and one of the main obstacles to you is evolution and how can we bring these two together. So that, that's where we're headed today, and we're going to look at three lies and corresponding truths with it, as, as we've said all along, that the main lie is always corroborated or accompanied with, you know, some supporting lies. So we're going to look at three of those and truths that I, that I believe refute those. You guys ready? Okay, wave your hand if you're still with me. Okay, awesome. Ten of you. No. Okay, lie number one. Christianity and science are incompatible. Maybe you came to church today, you were invited by somebody, and you think, oh, there's no way that Christianity and science can be brought together that they're just incompatible, that there's a great divide between the two, and you have to choose. You have to choose either, uh, you know, to, to believe that life and the universe came from completely natural processes, and so there is no creative process in that. There's no creativity. There's no God. Or you could believe that uh, you may have come today and said that, you know, life And the universe came about from an omnipotent and creative and loving God. And so there can be no natural processes that are part of that. That's a false dichotomy. The truth is that Christians should not have a problem with what science proves. And scientists should not have a problem admitting what they cannot prove. Or I would add to that has yet to be proven. Let me repeat that statement. Christians should not have a problem with what science proves. And scientists should not have a problem admitting what they cannot prove. So let me first of all talk to those of you who are Christians. If you're a Christian, you don't need to fear the discoveries of science. In fact, the, the origins of the universe and contemplating that and trying to figure it out should buttress your faith, not undermine it. Like Francis Collins, who headed up the Human Genome Project uh, in this country, and was instrumental in determining the, or discovering the sequence of DNA. And uh, he is currently the director of the National Institutes of Health in America. Uh, and he calls evolution God's elegant plan for creating humankind. And then he will go on quickly to tell you about his walk and his faith in Jesus Christ. You can also look at it this way as King David did in Psalm 19.1 when he said, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You know, when David was a shepherd and he sitting out there under that starlit sky, I'm sure, without streetlights to diffuse it, he's overwhelmed by the majesty of what he sees. And, it's, and I'm sure he wondered how it all came to be. But that discovery, that contemplation led him back to God in wonderment. God made human beings inquisitive. He made us with, with a sense of like, I want to figure that out some more than others. And yet I think that that's a, that's a natural thing that God puts in human beings. And I'm sure that when David sat under those stars, he didn't have it all figured out. He didn't have any of the answers. We have more answers today, but it wasn't like he was ignorant about it. It's just his perspective. But to, to contemplate and think about these things is completely natural, and I think God designed. In Proverbs thirty eighteen Agur says this, there are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. So this writer of this proverb, he, he's contemplating the things that he sees. He's saying, I, I don't understand them. I wish I could. I wonder about these things. And he wonders about the animal kingdom and their mode of transportation, Right? An eagle's flying and yet there's a snake that's crawling and they're not walking like a human being. So he contemplates the animal kingdom. He contemplates uh, physics and how can a ship laden with cargo and human beings, how, how can it float upon the sea? And then he contemplates love, which we're all still contemplating, right? Anybody got that figured out? Men? No, I didn't think so. Christians, God has placed within us a thirst for knowledge and a thirst to understand the way things are. It's the way God made us. You don't need to fear what you might learn from science. Now, scientists, you don't need to fear saying, I don't know, or I don't know yet, because there are some things that have not been explained by experiment or Uh, Cannot be. On National Public Radio in 2013, they reported on an article that was in a newspaper from the UK called The Guardian. It's one of the biggest newspapers in the UK. And The Guardian was doing a story on a recent book that had come out about the questions that science is trying to answer and yet have not answered. And there are many, but I have four here. Um, One, where did matter come from? We know that matter's here. But how did it come to be in the first place, since we know that matter cannot create matter? Second question, why does matter even exist? Because according to the laws of physics, matter can't exist on its own. These are scientists' words and questions. Thirdly, what makes us human? In the way I have three times as many neurons in our brain as a gorilla, yet we We share almost identical DNA, yet we are so different. How does the human brain generate a sense of self that only human beings have? Scientists have not yet answered that. And then the ultimate question, how did life come about? Scientists have not answered that. Read it another way. How did life come from life? And scientists admit that there is still no definitive answer on that. See, there are things that science has not yet answered, and there are, pro- there are things that, they were pro- that science will never be able to answer, like, where does the value of a human being come from? What, what is the purpose of an individual? Uh, what is the meaning of my life? Where does conscience, consciousness come from? What about morality and my values? These are things that are yet unanswered. See, Christianity, doesn't need to reject nor fear scientific discoveries and if you're a scientist it's okay for you to admit as this writer in proverbs did there are some things that are too amazing for me others that i do not understand lie too you guys with me slap your neighbor if you're still with me okay <laughs> ouch little marriage counseling is available Lie two, evolution is a fact. Hold on. The truth is, what we actually know is that microevolution is a fact and macroevolution is a theory. Microevolution is a fact and macroevolution is a theory. When I say microevolution, I'm talking about evolution within... uh, a species or a group of organisms and we're usually talking about a short period of time. For instance, dogs. There are all kinds of dogs and some of those changes have been the, uh, the product of selection of environment and sometimes they've been selection of breeding, not natural selection but actually intentional selection. So there are all kinds of dogs. I I had two Yorkies in my life. That may be shocking to you. Um, Scooter and Spanky. And they've all gone to heaven, a place that no cats go. But dogs go there. And that is a scientific fact that's been proven, by the way. But in the dog species, you have Yorkies and Collies and... Uh, great danes and golden retrievers and if i didn't say your dog i'm sorry you know but you can say it under your breath right now you know all kinds of dogs um and birds you know there's um love doves which we have two that have built a nest in our patio second year in a row they came back to stay at the site b&b and um i gotta say they're like the laziest birds ever they're their their nest is like scraggly you know they don't even try and tie it together there's always twigs falling down and I don't know. They're just lazy birds, but that's, that's not part of the sermon. There's uh, love doves and sparrows and macaws and eagles. Microevolution. If you're a Christian, accept it. But macroevolution, when I use that word, what we're talking about is the evolution over a long period of time, eras of entire taxonomic groups. Um, Think grand scheme, think life from non-life, and that is not proven scientifically. Macroevolution is a theory. If you're a scientist, accept it. Professor James Tour is a professor at Rice University, and he is one of the most cited chemists in the world right now. He is a professor of chemistry, of computer science, and of mechanical engineering and materials. And he's co-authored 640 scientific publications, and his name is on 120 patents. And here's what he said. I simply do not understand chemically how macroevolution could have happened. Does anyone understand the chemical details behind macroevolution? If so, I would like to sit with that person and be taught, so I invite them to meet with me. Now, in 2012, Dr. Tour gave a speech at Georgia Tech. It was called, the, the speech was called Nanotech in Jesus Christ. And here's what he said to a student who asked him about evolution. It's a long quote, but hang with me. I will tell you as a scientist and a synthetic chemist, if anyone should be able to understand evolution, it is me, because I make molecules for a living, and I don't just buy a kit and mix this and mix this and get that. I don't understand evolution, and I will confess that to you. Is that okay for me to say, I don't understand this? Is that all right? I know that there's a lot of people out there that don't understand anything about organic synthesis, but they understand evolution. I understand a lot about making molecules. I don't understand evolution. And you would just say that, wow, I must be really unusual. Let me tell you what goes on in the back rooms of science with National Academy members, with Nobel Prize winners. I've sat with them. And when I get them alone, not in public, because it's a scary thing, if you say what I just said, and I say, do you understand all of this, where all of this came from, and how this happens? And every time I've sat with people who are synthetic chemists who understand this, they go, uh-uh, nope. You know, there's an enormous amount of research and Christians and science scientists are thinking these th- things through and researching it and, and pondering the origins of human beings in the universe. But um, Christian, you don't need to fear the facts, and if you're a scientist, none of us need to get ahead of the facts, in particular the things that have not yet been proven. You ready for lie number three? Okay, five of you. Thank you. Okay, lie three. My inner nerd's coming out, isn't it? Uh, lie three. Uh, the Bible says that God created the universe in six 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago. Now, hold on. Don't leave yet. Let me repeat it. The Bible says that God created the universe in six 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago. The truth. The truth is that the Bible clearly says that God created the universe and human beings, but it doesn't say how. The Bible clearly says that God created the universe and human beings, but it doesn't say how. What exactly does the Bible say about the origins of mankind? Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Psalm 139.13, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So, these are some of the key verses uh, to describe creation of mankind and the universe. There's no question that the Bible says that the first humans were created by God. And that God has had some creative capacity in every human being born since then. But does it say how? To quote the scientists speaking to Dr. Tour. Uh-uh. Nope. We don't really know. Now, before I before you think I'm a heretic, and before you like, go charging out of here and blow up social media, or you're already writing your email to me, I wanna I wanna talk to you, especially anonymous, whoever Mr. Anonymous is. We know who you are. Okay, um, here's, let me tell you what I believe about the Bible before we go forward. First of all, I believe that the Bible's inspired by God, that God, through his Holy Spirit, spoke to the writers of your Old and New Testament, and he used their personalities and their situation and their experience, and he spoke to things in their time, sometimes prophetically into the future, but God inspired them to write, and he, he chose the people that he chose to write it. And those writings have been miraculously preserved over the centuries. And I, and, and I don't say that like just lightly. It is a miracle that we're holding our Bibles today. What we hold is 100% reliable. It is authentic. It's authoritative. It is God's Word. And what's even more remarkable is that God, what we have in our hand is compli- It's 66 books written by 40 authors, and I think that even God was involved in helping the 1500s Christians pick which books were authentic and should be in your Bible. You're holding a miracle in your hand. It is God's word. And since I've become a Christian, Um, I've been trying to understand the Bible. I've read it regularly. I've given my, my time. I've given all of my heart to it. I believe it wholeheartedly. I proclaim it. I'm not ashamed of it. And to the best of my ability, and I fall short every day, I've tried to live it. But here's another truth that goes with that. The truth is that the Bible should be interpreted based on who it was written to and according to the genre in which it was written. The Bible should be interpreted based on who it was written to and and according to the genre in which it was written. Let's talk about the who. You know, when you hold your Bible, you're not holding a document that was written to you. It was written for you, but not to you. So you're holding a book, a compilation of books that have been written to specific situations and contexts. When you, when you read Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the Christians out of Ephesus, he is writing back to this church that he started, but he's, right, he's addressing the issue specific to those people. When you read Romans, you're reading uh, letters that Paul wrote to Roman Christians, when, and, and so on, and Hebrews. And when you read the Old Testament, you're reading uh, how God inspired different prophets, and uh, narratives, and history, to write to that situation. And so when you interpret the Bible, I believe in the plain reading of Scripture. That is, what did it plainly mean to those that it was written to? How did they understand it? So when part of interpreting the Bible is saying, who was this written to? What was the context? And what, what is the writer addressing? And how would that, the people that it was written to, how did they understand it? Because that is the understanding of it. And we derive truths from that. But we have to do that homework on the front end, addressing specific cultural issues and context. And that sometimes explains why it might say this in this situation and that in another. Who it was written to is very, very important. if, if the Bible was just written willy-nilly and we were just picking verses, we would just flip through and point our finger on there and go, oh, Judas went out and hanged himself. <laughs> go thou and do likewise. I mean, you can get all kinds of crazy beliefs if you do that. You have to do the work. So who it was written to. The second thing we need to consider in interpreting the Bible is genre. And I've listed in your note sheet like different genres that are in the Bible. There's historical text that is you know it's telling something that happened in history there are narratives that are about a story about people and we read them as a narrative there are figurative passages in the bible and in its opposite there are actually literal passages there are prescriptive passages do this don't do that there are prayers recorded in the bible there is poetry and songs your psalms which by the way this This summer, we're going to do a series on Psalms. We're going to do eight messages from Psalms. I can't wait to get to that. So, what does the Bible mean then, considering who it was written to and the genre in in which it was written? What does the Bible mean when it says, God is a rock? Is God literally a rock? He shelters us with his wings. Does God have feathers? He made man from the dust of the earth. And Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Are these literal, prescriptive words to us? That's the challenge. So when it comes to the, the Genesis account and thoughts about origins of the universe and mankind, here's some things to think about. I don't, I'm not saying you have to believe this. I'm just I'm trying to help you think a little bit. Here's some things to think about. What genre was the creation story written in? Have you ever considered that? Are the days literal? Or are they poetic? Is it possible that when the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of Genesis in this narrative, did he inspire them to write it in a poetic style, not literal? Is the dust of the earth and the breath of life poetic? It's something to think about. Inspired by God, of course. But what is its genre? What style? Is it a scientific treatise? Of course not. The Bible is not a science book. Second thing to consider, something to think about. Does the text allow for other interpretations about what a day is? can it only be a 24-hour day? Do You know, even in the Hebrew, the word day is yom. And the word yom can mean a 24-hour solar day, like we understand it. it. It can also mean a segment of time, like not just a day, but a week or a month or a year or even an era. We use that term similarly. We talk about back in the day. We're not talking about a specific day. We're talking about a segment of time. So is it possible that that narrative allows for day to be interpreted as a geological era? Let me, let me point out a verse that you may not have connected with this. In 2 Peter 3.8, Peter says, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So, even the New Testament, Old Testament, the, the way day is used can mean different things. If that's possible, doesn't it leave room for someone to believe that the six days that are mentioned in Genesis are six geological eras? Um, you know, there is nothing that I can see, maybe we're, we don't agree on this, but there's nothing that I can see in the, in the account of the origin of men in the universe that doesn't allow for the universe being about 14 billion years old and for the earth being about 4.5 billion years old, which, by the way, is a recent scientist's closest estimate. And then, think about this, think about the Big Bang. Sometimes Christians are freaked out about that. Do you know, to me, the Big Bang sounds a lot like creation. So maybe scientists and Christians are more on the, pa- on the same page than we thought originally. The only difference is, I believe that there had to be a Big Banger to put on the Big Bang. Now, if you prefer, and it's okay, Uh, If you prefer a six-day, literal day, 6,000-year-old earth, that's okay. And, you know, I'm not trying actually even to change your belief on that. It's like I respect your belief enough actually to want to change it. So, um, you guys okay? Thank you. Actually, there was a time that I, as a Christian, I held that belief. But I'm not saying I have all the answers, but that's that's not in my column anymore. Um, And I say that very humbly, and I think whatever your position is on this, you need to hold it humbly. Uh, I heard someone once say that um, we should have strong convictions held humbly. And it was a Quaker man that I heard quoted that said, uh, he made a very strong, convictional statement, and then he said, but I could be wrong. And I've tried to embrace that more and more because I know that there are things that I believed in the past that I don't believe anymore. My belief has changed on that. Is that okay? I bet yours have too. In fact, any of the important references that I've made today Uh, you can research these even further on the back of your note sheet. I've I've left you some resources. And one of those resources is a book about how some of the most uh, well-known evangelical teachers and and, um, thinkers today have changed some of their positions on, uh, you know, where they think human beings came from. Um, And then also you have to remember, like, our history. You know, the church has been wrong in the past. So we have to be careful what we unnecessarily stand and fight for. For instance, you know that the early church fathers thought that the earth was flat. And Augustine, St. Augustine, ridiculed the idea that there are human beings on the other side of the earth walking upside down. And you know, Copernicus in the 1600s discovered that the sun wasn't circling the earth, but the earth was circling the sun. And of course, we know from history that Galileo paid the price for talking about that. So, let's not, like, not fight and drive stakes down on things that truthfully we don't know everything about. By the way, if you, if you hold to the 6,000-year-old Earth, there's a few obstacles I want to point out to you. And again, I'm not trying to get in your face. I'm just trying to get you to think about some things, okay? First of all, there's the fossil record. So that's a problem. Where did that saber-tooth, tiger-tooth come from? Um, There's carbon dating. In a 6,000-year-old Earth, there's not enough time for all the changes that we know have occurred to have occurred. If it's a 24 hour solar day that Genesis is talking about, do you realize that the sun and the moon aren't put into place till day four? So, how could the first three have been solar days without their solar process that we have? And you know, that account also says that on the seventh day, God rested. So does an omnipotent, creative God actually need a day off? There's lots of, lots of room, lots of space to think about these things. Can I personally answer these definitively? Of course not. I don't think anybody can on this side of heaven. What I believe in the end is that science and faith have their lane. And it's a space that we can exclusively own. They merge together in places, but we can't try to impose or try to get in another lane and, or try to make the Bible be a science book or make science describe faith because it cannot. It's not designed to do that. It's like trying to make one thing do everything. In my truck, I have this tool left over from when I was a fireman. I don't know if I ever mentioned to you guys, but I used to be a fireman. I got hammered last week. So thank you, everybody, for my emails and social media notes and everything. You guys are really funny um, about that. Um, I have this tool. It's called a Leatherman. It's supposed to do everything. It has a, a wrench. It's got screwdrivers, a knife. And it, and it does indeed do everything. It just doesn't do everything very well. Um, if, I, if I have a screw to put in, a wall or something, I get a screwdriver or better yet, you know, a drill driver and it's like zippity doo da I'm, I'm moving on my way. So, sometimes trying to make one thing do all, it doesn't really work. Um, so, we create unnecessary problems for ourselves when we try to, to impose science language into a book that was written about the relationship of God with human beings. And, and certainly, if we try to make science take on faith, then that's going to create an unnecessary conflict as well. You know, when I started out today, I said that I have three people in mind. You know, there's some of you that are here today, and I said, if you, if you feel like your faith is just dependent upon a six-day, solar day, 24-hour creation, and um, a 6,000-year-old earth, I said that I was going to challenge you. And, and I hope that I have. But I hope that that challenge will strengthen you and buttress your faith. I'm not trying to undermine your faith. I'm actually trying to bring into your conversation or your thought life, may, maybe this is old news to you, but I know for some of you it's new. You need to know what is the conversation among scientists and Christians. So hopefully I've strengthened your faith by challenging that belief. Also said, I wanted to talk to those of you who you feel that um, the Bible is an unreliable document and somehow has been debunked by science. I hope that I've enlightened you a little bit and maybe maybe like move your meter a little bit on your thinking on faith. And then I also said that I want to talk to those of you who you feel that um, you could not embrace faith because of your understanding of the origins of man or the universe. And that you know maybe you've left faith. Maybe you're on the edge of faith. And I'd just like to point out to you that it's unnecessary. There, there is space under the tent of faith. Because none of us know the answers. We're trying to figure them out the best we can. But it is not the thing that you have to stand on. In fact, the first verse that I put up in regard to this talk today was well, from psalm 19:1, and it says this these are the words of david the shepherd and king of israel the heavens declare the glory of god and the skies proclaim the work of his hands again as david sat back and and contemplated what he saw he didn't have all the answers he never would neither will we but he was amazed at what he saw which is i think in human beings there's like this God-spaced shape that only God can fill. Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men and women. And so as you stand back and you contemplate wherever you're coming from in your faith, and you look at all of this marvelous stuff that may, maybe you feel you have answers for, maybe you want more, maybe, maybe yours is done with it, I don't know. But like, you are amazed. And there's probably something inside you that says there. Is there something more? The last thought I want to leave with you is that all of this creation, this omnipotent, creative God that made what we see, he also loves human beings. That's the thing. That, you know, for the scientist, God is like, Remote and far away, and the world is so big, the universe is so big, and man so small and insignificant. And yet that's not the way God views it. The world is amazing and, and completely I mean not completely, but for the most part ununderstandable. That God sent his son to redeem human beings. That God that made all this loves you. He loves you the way you are. And He's not too busy to pierce your heart with the truth of Jesus Christ. I hope that you'll consider that. Let's pray.